you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Henry W. Shoemaker wrote several books in the early part of the 20th century collecting tales of Pennsylvania folklore. One of his early books, 1909's Pennsylvania Mountain Stories, contained a tale called The Black Wolf of Oak Valley. It described how an outlaw and all-around bad man from Center County named Cyrus Varninger had become engaged in a shootout with police after he murdered two men in a barroom brawl, a shootout in which he was killed. A ghostly wolf later haunted the spot where Varninger was buried until his body was exhumed on the advice of a witch and reburied. It was only later I found out that Shoemaker was, well, not the most reliable of writers. A lot of the stories he wrote were based on actual tales, but he often took liberties with the actual details. In the case of the Black Wolf of Oak Valley, he admitted in the text that the names and places were changed, but the events were what actually happened. These names, he said, were changed because the events had occurred in recent memory. I found this story really interesting. I have some sort of fascination with tales of ghostly canines, and dug through newspapers only a little while until I found the story it had originally been based on. This was the story of William Metlinger, which had taken place only 13 years before the publication of Shoemaker's book in the village of Woodward in Center County. William Etlinger was born in 1860 to Solomon and Sarah Etlinger. When he was 20, he married Alice, the daughter of Reverend Louis Fleischer of the Evangelical Church in town. Solomon Etlinger was a grocer and generally regarded as an honest man. He also served as treasurer of the Haynes Township School Board and went missing in April of 1885. It was then found that $1,000 was missing from the school's coffers and it was later revealed that he owed several townspeople $3,000. The authorities were unable to locate him, but approximately a month later, he was discovered in the village of Potter's Mills having shot himself. He lingered for another month, finally dying on June 20th. In 1889, Alice Etlinger died. It was well known that she had been mistreated by her husband, and in hindsight after the events to come, it was rumored that William had murdered her. William Etlinger left Woodward and went to Colorado for a time, supposedly settling in Leadville. Here, it was rumored he associated with outlaws and criminals. He later returned east and continued his work as a machinist and lumberman. He married a second time to Mary Jane Benner. 
1893, his mother Sarah died, and the next year, Etlinger helped rebuild a number of bridges in the Woodward area damaged by flooding. But though well known as a tradesman, he didn't seem to have the best reputation in his personal life. He was known to have a violent temper, and he was horribly vengeful when angered, and nursed grudges for a long time. The beginnings of the story for which the name William Etlinger is most infamous, however, came in August 1895. Some sort of argument had broken out between William and his wife's father, Benjamin Benner, when both were in the blacksmith shop belonging to Frank Geiswhite. It's said in some accounts that the argument was in part due to suspicions William had that his wife was being unfaithful. But while what exactly it was is unknown, the outcome isn't. William Etlinger badly beat the elderly Benner with a piece of firewood almost killing him. Geist White intervened and managed to remove Etlinger from the premises. Some accounts of the events have it that Benjamin Benner was murdered, but he didn't die until 1904. He was arrested for assault and held for later trial. His bail was later paid by Isaac Orndorff, a distant relative of William's, and another man named Daniel Engel. But when it came time for his trial, somewhat predictably, Etlinger had skipped town. It was believed he had taken up residence in the woods and mountains south of Woodward, known as the Narrows. Judge John G. Love issued an arrest warrant for William Etlinger on behalf of Orndorff and Engel, which was taken up by Constable Edward Mingle of Ironsburg. However, he never managed to apprehend the wanted fugitive. In February of 1896, a new constable was elected, John F. Barner of Woodward. He was sworn in on March 2nd. Barner made it a promise to apprehend the fugitive Etlinger, who had by now reappeared in Woodward. It was believed that with the onset of winter a few months before, he had fled back to his home, where he had been hiding out ever since. It was said that since his reappearance, William Etlinger would often stand at his front door, taking pot shots at passers-by, and particularly if it were someone he held a grudge against. It's been a bit difficult to place Etlinger's house in modern-day Woodward, as neither of the landmarks around it are still there either. For the longest time, probably due to the newspapers having called it a cabin, I assumed it was in the forest outside town. But a map appearing in one account has it in the middle of town, between the evangelical church and the schoolhouse. An earlier map has S. Etlinger, most likely Solomon, living in a house at roughly the same spot. The details of the map in the newspaper weirdly, do not correspond really at all to the actual layout of the town Woodward, so I'm not sure exactly where this house was. But it has S. Etlinger living in a house at roughly the same spot. So I assume William lived in the house that had been his father's, and then I believe the location of this home had been at the corner of Woodward Gap Road. On March 5th, 1896, Barner heard from other people that Etlinger was definitely at home, along with his wife, Mary Jane, and his children, Bessie and Jay. Procuring the warrant, he gathered two deputies, Carl Motts and John Hosterman, and made his way to his house. When they arrived, they found that William Etlinger had barricaded himself and his family in an upstairs bedroom. Going upstairs and gaining entry into the bedroom, Constable Barner was shot in the head by Etlinger. His body tumbled back down the stairs, and Mott's being a shopkeeper and Hosterman a farmer, 
Neither were law enforcement officers, and so they ran away to try to get help. Constable Barner had been on the job for only three days when killed. John Brumgard was running across the street to help the two deputies when Etlinger fired at him from an upstairs window, narrowly avoiding hitting him. At this, Motts and Hosterman fled the scene, and William Etlinger began freely firing his gun out the windows. One person who sustained injury was Frank Geiswhite, who had broken up the fight between Etlinger and Benjamin Benner the year before. Geiswhite was standing near the window to see what all the commotion was about when he was shot in the shoulder and his head grazed by another bullet. Many accounts, particularly earlier ones when exactly what had occurred that day was somewhat jumbled and unclear, have it that Geiswhite was accompanying Constable Barner into the house, and several also have it that he was fatally injured, when in actuality, his wounds weren't that serious. I wonder whether the reports of two fatalities here was influenced by Henry W. Shoemaker's version of the tale in which the perpetrator had killed two men, as opposed to one in reality. He had taken shots at, the, at both of his bail co-signers as well. Isaac Orndorff was riding his horse up the main street of Woodward past the Etlinger home when William appeared and called to him, asking how he'd like to be shot like a dog and firing, though Orndorff was not injured. He had also taken shots at Daniel Engel, who likewise was unhurt by the barrage. William Etlinger had also fired a few shots through the window of the schoolhouse nearby, narrowly avoiding missing some, hitting some children. After this, school was dismissed for the day. It was now about 4 p.m. The people of Woodward sent a telegram to Belfont and Sheriff John P. Condo. Condo, a former salesman and farmer, had been elected sheriff in 1894 and retired in 1897. He didn't arrive at Woodward until 8.15 that night. In the ensuing four hours, William Etlinger continued sporadically firing at townspeople. A few were injured, although only slightly. Sheriff Condo arrived along with 16 men, most camping out in the woods of Woodward Gap, far enough away from Etlinger's house to be out of gunshot range. A cordon was established to make sure that the fugitive did not escape. A firefight ensued between Etlinger and some of the guards all night. As an account in the Philadelphia Press indicated, there is hardly a foot on any part of the outside of the house that was not hit by bullets. The windows and shutters of the home, the press reports mentioned, were totally ruined and riddled with holes, and the doors nearly hung off the hinges they were so full of bullet holes. During the shootout, John Musser was badly injured. He was shot in the neck as he crept in near to the stables behind Etlinger's house. I wasn't able to determine if he survived these wounds or not. Carl Motts, who had accompanied Barner into the house, was also shot that night. A reporter from Belfont named Charles L. Gates had accompanied Sheriff Condo to Woodward that evening, and as the nearest telephone to Woodward was in a town 12 miles away, he swiftly set up a, quote, courier posse of messengers strung along the roads between the tiny village and where he sat on a telephone relaying messages to the newspaper offices in Belfont, from which the story was wired to nearly every major paper in Pennsylvania. As a result, the Etlinger story is extremely well documented, and sometimes occupied more space on the newspaper page than did stories about the notorious H.H. H. Holmes in prison in Philadelphia at the time. As can be expected, other than the posse of guards surrounding Etlinger's house, few people were on the streets, 
and the few that were wisely didn't venture near the part of town where the shootout was taking place. Now, at this time, keep in mind it was unclear whether Constable Barner was actually dead or not. Certainly, he hadn't been seen since entering the house, and Motts and Hosterman weren't certain whether he was killed or not. But the sheriff thought it was probable, and indeed most likely, that he was. It was also uncertain what the status of Etlinger's wife and children was. It was thought by many that he may have killed them as well. Eventually, it quieted it down enough that it was believed that William Etlinger himself may have committed suicide. Emboldened by the calm, Sheriff Condo led some men toward the bullet-riddled house and was surprised when bullets began flying at them. The sheriff's men returned fire and fell back to the woods. Apparently, Etlinger hadn't committed suicide after all. Around 7 a.m., the sheriff again tried to approach the house. Again, shots rang out and again the men were forced to withdraw back to the woods. Sheriff Condo wired Belfont to try to get 25 more men to come to Woodward. More men and ammunition were sent. Sometime around noon, a sheriff's def deputy named James Cornelly doused the stables and a few other outbuildings in oil and set them on fire. Then some of the guards began lobbing flaming balls of fabric at the house, attempting to catch it on fire as well in an attempt to smoke Etlinger out of the house. These attempts failed, but the flames from the outbuildings eventually managed to catch the house on fire. This decision was to prove controversial, and exactly what occurred is a bit murky. But more on that later. Once the flames had caught, and Etlinger became aware that his house was being burnt, the cellar doors flew open and out came one of the children, four-year-old Bessie. She was followed a moment later by three-year-old Jay. Etlinger and his wife could be seen in the open door, and they appeared to be arguing. It was assumed she was trying to get him to give himself up. Then she broke away, and on the heels of the children came Mary Jane. She stumbled as fast as she could toward the guards. Several shots rang out following her as her husband attempted to shoot her, but she reached the cordon unhurt. Some townspeople were standing at the corner opposite Etlinger's house, beside a building he used as a woodshed. They conversed with him and told him to give himself up and that he would be protected from the other townspeople, doubtless ready to carry out some so-called frontier justice on the gunmen. They explained to him that all that was sought was his surrender and the return of Constable Barner's body. Etlinger threw his rifle into the road. He then walked slowly out of the, sh out of the cellar, a revolver in his hand. One guard shot at Etlinger, whereupon he's reported to have said, None of you will have the satisfaction of killing me, and then shot himself with a revolver he carried. No sooner had Etlinger committed this act than the gathered town people rushed into the burning house, located the body of Constable Barner, and came out. It was then seen that not only was he shot in the head, which wound Motts and Hosterman had witnessed, but he had also been shot in the chest and his throat had been slit. Seeing this, some of the crowd began to punch and kick Etlinger's body. As the flames consumed more of the house, a number of explosions took place, pieces of metal flying around, and it was realized Etlinger's home was stocked with homemade bombs. Finally, the house burned completely, and people predictably made their way into the smoldering ruins to forage for souvenirs. The coroner ruled that John Barner came to his death by receiving two gunshot wounds, and having his throat cut, at the hands of some person unknown. After all, 
Even though Mott's and Hosterman had witnessed Marner being shot, there was no telling who exactly it was who actually pulled the trigger. Likely Etlinger, but maybe not. Mary Jane and both of William's two brothers, Warren and James, declined to claim his body. As a result, he was carted down in the Woodward Gap and buried in a hastily assembled coffin. Once more, this is the subject of some confusion. Obviously, this is where Shoemaker's story of the ghostly black wolf comes into play. And it is true that as he describes, the body is no longer there. A write-up of the case in the Pennsylvania Rambler website says that most accounts and words-of-mouth recountings have it that his body was moved some years later, when Jay Etlinger exhumed his father's remains from the hastily dug grave in a peach orchard belonging to Louis Orndorff. In actuality, the body was moved in May 1896, after a petition filed by Mary Jane, and had nothing to do with advice from a witch. A day or so after the shootout concluded, Mary Jane Etlinger was interviewed by the Lewisburg Journal, describing what had happened inside the house. When I saw Mr. Barner come, I took the two children and ran upstairs to my husband, first locking the doors of the house. Upon being ordered by Mr. Barner to open the door, I refused to do so. He then broke the front door in and came to the stair door, which was also locked. He broke a panel in of the door and attempted to force an entrance through it, holding a lighted lamp in one hand and revolver in the other. When he had his head through the opening, Etlinger from the top of the stairs fired two loads of buckshot into his head. After he had fired the first shot, he thought it had not killed Barner, so he shot again. Soon after, my husband descended the stairs and said he would finish the son of a bitch and cut his throat and came upstairs and told me that he intended to shoot me now and then shoot himself. He told me to call some of the neighbors to come for the children and then he would shoot me. I told him that none of the neighbors would come near to our house at that time. He then got the shackles and put them on my feet so that I would not run away from him, and made me go up on the garret and take the children with me. While up on the garret, I walked to one of the windows, and one of the guards seeing me shot at me, the ball just cutting the skin open on my face a little below the right ear. After being on the garret the greater part of the afternoon, he commanded me to bring the children down to the second floor. He then told the children that they would now have to leave us, that he would shoot their mother and then himself. The children then began to cry and tried to protect me by putting their heads on my head and their arms about my neck and tried to shield me from his fury. On Thursday night, we all slept on the floor in the hall, at the head of the stairs, setting up a heavy mattress and some building paper to protect us from the rifle balls that were pouring in on us from the outside. My husband slept soundly the greater part of Thursday night, notwithstanding all the firing from the guns outside. We remained upstairs till the next morning, till we saw that the sheriff was there with his posse. Then he told me we would go down into the cellar, that they, the sheriff, might set fire and that would be our safest place of retreat. To go downstairs I had to slide from step to step, not being able to walk with the shackles on. When I came to the door, Barner was still in the panel, and I was compelled to creep over his dead body. After we were in the cellar, we remained there till the house was in flames, he shooting out through the window of the cellar at the crowd outside. When we saw the flames gaining headway on the building, he loosened one of the shackles and told me to set the children free and then come back. 
and then I should shoot him, and he would shoot me simultaneously. But I refused to do this, saying, I, had, I never had committed murder before, and I would not do so now, and that I could not drag his body out if I did shoot him. I said that I would die with him outside where our bodies would not be consumed by the fire, but this he would not consent to. I then got the children and brought them out at the cellar door and sat upon the cellar door, waiting for him to come out, but he commanded me to come back, but I did not go. He then said that he would shoot himself and fired at the crowd instead. I firmly believed that he had shot himself and then started to get away from the burning building, knowing that it was loaded with dynamite. I think that he fired the shot to fool me, thinking I would return to the cellar to get his body out, and then he would have shot me and then himself. I was certain I would be shot before the tragedy was ended, and had consigned myself to my fate, thinking it inevitable that I must die. The only wonder is that not more lives were lost, Etlinger always being considered a dead shot, the same Lewisburg Journal article went on. According to Mary Jane, Everyone her husband shot at, aside from the sheriff's men, was someone he had a grudge against. He had shot at Isaac Orndorff and Daniel Engel because it was they who had complained and gotten the arrest warrant issued for him after he skipped town. And she claimed that even when he fired into the school, he was shooting at the specific children, the children of another man against whom he had a grudge. Frank Geiswhite was shot because it was he who had kept Etlinger from killing her father. Mary Jane Etlinger also claimed that her husband had possession of a quantity of arsenic and strychnine with which he intended to poison much of the drinking water of Woodward. Soon after Etlinger's burial, there were some reports that his body had been stolen from the grave, but such turned out not to be the case. The genesis of the story lay with several reporters in Woodward to gather information relating to the shootout and who had gone out to the spot in the woods where Etlinger had been buried. Then they left, but when visiting it, they apparently disturbed some of the dirt and rocks on the grave, which soon led to the rumor that they had stolen William's corpse. On March 11th, Mary Jane received a telegram from Frank Zano, proprietor of the Continental Hotel in Philadelphia. Zano offered to pay her $50 a week for a six-week contract to display the skeleton of her husband in his museum. She turned down Zano's offer. By March 20th, a collection was being taken up among Woodward's populace for a large grave marker for Constable Barner. This same story also let us know that everyone shot during the standoff was recovering well, and also marked the beginning of Mary Jane's petition to have her husband taken from the grave in the woods and moved to the cemetery. On July 23, 1897, charges were filed against Sheriff Condo and several deputies. Etlinger's house, had not actually belonged to him. It had been bought by an Emma Goodman some months before. It was ruled by the court that the sheriff needed to pay damages to the estates of Mrs. Goodman, who had since died, in the order of $900. Sheriff Condo countersued, but unsuccessfully. Though Mary Jane Etlinger maintained that she was only an unwilling participant in the shootout, many accounts have it that she took part in the shooting at the crowd. This was never really believed by the town by the townspeople of Woodward, and perhaps with good reason. A few years later, she remarried, this time to Edson Fultz. Edson seems to have had as bad a reputation as her former husband did, and in 1905, she, Edson, 
Edson's brother George, and Perry Kissinger, were arrested for stealing a total of $4,000 from two old eccentrics, Henry and Martin Eby. It turned out that Mary Jane Etlinger, now Fultz, had worked as a servant in the, in the home of the Ebys. Detectives from Philadelphia aiding the investigation later arrested three other men, Charles and Wilson Haynes and Thomas Bowersox. A bizarre postscript to the Etlinger affair was the death of Howard Orndorff. A story appearing on March 17, 1896, says that there was another death in Woodward, which had taken place the day before and was supposed to have had some kind of relationship to the story of William Etlinger. This death was supposedly that of a young girl. So, knowing the death took place on March 16th, I set out to see whether there were actually any deaths in Woodward on that day, or whether it was something just completely invented by the newspapers. I was rewarded with finding the name Howard Orndorff, who did indeed have a death registered on that day, but who was 20, so neither particularly young nor a girl. Now, as a coincidence, Howard Orndorff was also related to the Benners and thus a relative of William Etlinger's. His brother was Louis Orndorff, on whose land tradition holds that William Etlinger was buried, and his uncle was Isaac Orndorff, who had paid Etlinger's bail and was nearly shot by him. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.